Well, hello, folks, and welcome back to our midweek Bible study podcast. Um, this is the third one of these I'm doing, so uh, I want to remind you before I dig into anything here that you are always welcome to send in questions in advance. That means you can email them to me. Uh, my email address is forest.divinity at asburycc.org. You can also just find that on the church website. Uh, or you're also welcome, if you don't want to bother with email, you know, when, we, when we share these podcasts on our church Facebook page, you're also welcome to just go into the comments there and ask your questions there. Um, I will note, by the way, that for the most part, unless you, if you send in a question via email, um, I'm not usually going to bother with, with repeating your name on here because I know that sometimes some of the questions that people have about the Bible, they they maybe feel, I, mean, I don't know, a little silly asking them sometimes, or they worry a little bit what other people might think of them. So just know that if you send in a question via email, uh, I do keep that confidential. I won't tell anyone who asked what. Um, and I say that because you're welcome not only to ask questions about the the passages that we have read this week, but you can ask questions about anything we have read so far this year, this year. You can ask questions about things we're going to read, and you can also just ask questions that you have always had about the Bible but never really felt like you had somebody you could ask them to. Uh, and, and that includes things like if you have questions about where we get biblical support for um, some of the things that we believe and teach as Christians, you can ask those questions too. Uh, and, and just feel free to ask them any week. You don't have to wait until you're at a part of the Bible that, that you think um, fits with that question or anything like that. Um, so, this week I'm going to continue talking about the books of Samuel a little bit. And the reason is that I'm not really going to be preaching on these very much. I, I did preach this Sunday. If you weren't there this week, I, I did talk about my sermon was on David and Goliath, which is in 1 Samuel 17. Had a lot of fun preaching on that. It's one of my favorite Bible stories. Um, but we're moving on, and, and you know, this is one of the challenges of doing this one-year Bible thing is that I really do want to sort of cover everything, um, and you know, I definitely can't do that on, on Sunday mornings. There's things I have to skip over, um, and, and part that's of course part of why we're doing this Bible study is that it, you know, I can cover a bit more when I do that. Although it is still actually really difficult to ensure that I am covering every part of the Bible that I want to make sure we talk about. And that's also part of why I want you guys to ask your questions and send those in, because that way, um, you know, there might be things that you really want to know about, and maybe they're not really on my radar, and so I don't talk about them as much as I should. Uh, so, as I said, ask your questions, please, please, please uh, send those in. Because uh, that, that, I think, will make this really a much more powerful, much more meaningful experience for all of you. Um, so, with that said, let's dive right in. Um, we are we're really moving through the, the books of Samuel. We're actually, um, I believe, this Wednesday today, actually, is when we're going to be... We're, we're now well into 2 Samuel, if I remember correctly. Um, I, I get the, the actual readings that we're technically on for each day a little bit off because I have to read ahead of it to make sure I'm um, putting together the right Bible study material. So sometimes I forget uh, what readings we're doing for the day, but we're we're deep, deep into these books of Samuel, which are 
really fascinating books that, that are talking about the rise of the monarchy in Israel, the unification of the people, and above all, the transformation of the people of Israel from, from this sort of loose confederation of tribal peoples into a unified nation. And because these are the biblical history of books, they aren't so much concerned with getting the actual details of every event right so much as they are trying to explain what God is up to in the midst of that and what God's purposes are in the midst of all that. Uh, it's just a good thing to remember. So, um, and I want to highlight a couple of things here. First, you know, we've been reading a lot about David and Saul, and um, we, we do need to, to talk a little bit about, about there's an important distinction that the text makes between David and Saul. And when you read almost any English translation of the Bible, you won't pick up on this distinction because the translators have almost always chosen to sort of flatten this out. Um, and they do so sort of in the interest of helping the English-speaking modern, English modern reader to understand what's going on a little better. But they're, they're sort of flattening out the meaning. And that happens sometimes. There's just no way to perfectly capture the nuance of all of the Hebrew and Greek in this text uh, and still have something that your typical English-speaking Bible reader is going to understand. Um, but... You know, it refers, the, the English text refers to both David and Saul as kings or princes. And it will sometimes use those words interchangeably. However, in, he, in Hebrew, the words are a little bit different. Particularly when we are talking about how God himself refers to Saul and David. And so the word that God uses to refer to Saul is nagid. Nagid. This is a Hebrew word that does not actually mean king. God does not call Saul his chosen king. He does not tell Samuel to raise Saul up as a king, but as a nagid. And that word really means something more along the lines of a commander, a chief, a leader, but it's not a royal title. And that distinction, you know, it, sometimes it seems like I might be splitting hairs with something like this, but it actually does matter. Saul really does not end up being a king like we would envision a king. Uh, the, from reading all these stories in 1 Samuel, sorry about that, I'm sure you heard that. <laughs> Turn that sound off real quick. From reading all these stories in 1 Samuel, um, it would really seem, it seems like, It seems like Saul actually lives in the house he grew up in. Right? He doesn't build himself a big grand palace. He sort of just takes this title of Nagid and goes home and lives in the place he's always lived. 
And that's very consistent with a sort of tribal leader, a chieftain, more than a king. So he has the respect and the authority of a lot of people, but he isn't royal. And you'll even notice that David consistently refers to him as as the Lord's anointed, but David doesn't really doesn't really call him by any sort of royal titles. He just calls him the Lord's anointed. It's almost as if Saul is perhaps bridging the gap between the judges of of the previous books and the kings that are to come. He's like this intermediate step. By contrast, the word that is used to refer to David's position after Saul dies is Melech. And Melech does mean king, just as we would mean it. It is a royal title. And it signifies a very dramatic shift in how Israel will be governed from here on out. David David is not the first unified national leader, that's Saul, but David is the first king. So Saul is significant because he is really the first one who actually unites all the people of Israel. Before that, you know, all the judges you read about in the book of Judges, if you pay close attention, you'll notice they never really actually bring together the entire nation. They bring together multiple tribes, but more often than not, they only bring together, they might lead a coalition of like three or four of the tribes of Israel, um, but they aren't all really leading the entire nation. Samuel perhaps does. We don't really hear a whole lot about what Samuel is able to do as a judge, although it's clear he is a judge. Saul is the first one we know for sure has unified the entire people of Israel. But he's still not a king in the way that you or I would mean it. Right? He is not royalty. He's a chieftain. He's very powerful and influential. But he is not royalty. There are no... Doesn't it really appear to be any kind of like legal system in place around him? Doesn't seem as if he's levying taxes on anybody yet. Um, very, very different. So that sets up some of the things that are going to become important later in the story. So David's rise to power. This is what we've been reading about, essentially, in these, this last week or so. We've been reading about David's rise to power. And it begins with these incredible military victories. Uh, this is like the first time in Israel's history where they have a military leader who is consistently defeating the Philistines. They've had some in the past who won these big, incredible victories, and then they had peace for a while. This is the first time they've had someone who, you know, like he wins, he'll go win a huge battle, and then he'll go fight another battle and win it. And he'll just keep doing it. And he's like, he's taking the fight to the enemy. Um, he's, he's actually waging war and winning it. It's really the first time they've had that happen consistently. And so David becomes a national hero. I mean, people love this guy. There's really, you know, in, in living memory, there's not that many people in American history who really could compare. Um, the closest we might get is maybe, you could think of somebody, if you know your history, right? Maybe someone like Sergeant John Bassalone from World War II or Sergeant York from World War I. Um, but even then, it's not quite a great comparison because... You know, those guys were on the front lines and they were incredibly heroic. 
uh, at the same time, they were, they were, you know, frontline soldiers. David is like combining this role of being a frontline soldier with being a general. So it's like you have, you have these like Medal of Honor recipients, but then also combine it with like George Patton or Douglas MacArthur or, you know, just, it is, there's nothing really that compares for us to have a good idea. But David is this incredibly beloved national hero. He is a celebrity. The people love him. And that is very threatening to Saul. And see, this is why the distinction between Nagid and Melech matters. Right? A Nagid, a chieftain, a commander, a leader, he may be the Lord's anointed. But by definition, his power is derived from the consensus of the people. And it's based on his ability to demonstrate that he is the best leader they've got. As soon as there is a rival who can challenge him, his power is in jeopardy. Now, we see this kind of thing happening all throughout history. Okay, uh, Vikings are organized this way. When you have really big forces of Vikings, they, they often are unified under an especially powerful and influential clan chief, but that confederation only lasts as long as that particular chief goes unchallenged. The same is true of the Mongols. Genghis Khan is not a king or an emperor as we would understand. He is a clan chief who accrues a lot of power and respect. Uh, It's true for the Celts. It's really true of all tribal peoples. You see the same thing with the various Native American confederations that that formed to resist European colonization. They They weren't raising up kings for themselves. They had a powerful, influential chief who was able to unite the people for a period of time. And they might on occasion have rulers that we might call kings, but they don't have anything like the sort of centralized power and authority that a king has. Now, for a king, a military hero like David is great to have around. They aren't a threat to the king because they are a servant of the king. And we really are kind of playing with semantics here, but this is actually how, this is, this may all even be psychological in the minds of the people, but it matters. It matters because when you have a king and everyone knows he's the king and everyone knows the next king will be his oldest son, no one thinks that these big military heroes are going to usurp the king. No one even really wants them to. Instead, people associate the success of that military hero with the wisdom of the king who gave them their position. But with a chieftain, with a, with a Nagid, things are very different. A big military hero like David is a rival, not a servant. If he gains enough popular support, people will put him in charge and not you. Because that's how it's done in a tribal society. So you see the difference. It all has to do with the 
mechanisms of power, the mechanisms of government and how they are handed down. Now, of course, what Saul should have realized all along is that God's people weren't supposed to function in that way. What he should have done is sought the Lord's favor because he was the Lord's anointed. Had he just done what he was supposed to do, this would never have been an issue. But he either can't or won't do that, and he's already, by the time David's on the scene, Saul has already lost God's favor big time. And it's clear that David has God's favor, and so Saul treats David the same way any other tribal chieftain would treat a potential rival. He tries to kill him. He tries to drive him out of the area. He tries to confront him. Meanwhile, David, David does not behave like a potential rival should behave. He doesn't try and move against Saul directly. David is careful not to harm Saul, although he does humiliate him several times by demonstrating that he could have killed him and chose not to. My personal favorite is the one where Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself and David sneaks up, to all, up, up on him as he's using the bathroom, right, and cuts off part of his corner. That's humiliating for everybody involved, I have to imagine, and just thoroughly unpleasant. <laughs> but he has these moments where he, he is able to you know sneak up on Saul while he's sleeping or while he's in the cave and take something of his to demonstrate how close he was and to show Saul that he could have killed him and he chose not to. So yeah, David is very, very careful to not cause any harm to Saul. He even goes so far as to flee to the Philistines to avoid confronting Saul. This happens in uh, chapter 27 of 1 Samuel. I'll, I'll read out this bit right here. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to safely escape into the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of searching for me any more in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David set out and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. Now Gath, you'll recall, is the city that Goliath is from. And here's David going to live there to seek sanctuary. And David lived with Achish and Gath, he and his men, each with his own household. David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now it was reported to Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If, I, if now I have found favor in your sight, have them give me a place in one of the cities in the country so that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Wakish gave him Ziklag that day, and therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and attacked the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive, and he took the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, and the camels, and the clothing. And then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, Where did you carry out an attack today? And David said, Against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jeremelites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. And David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, Otherwise they will tell him about us, 
saying, this is what David has done, and this has been his practice all the time that he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has undoubtedly made himself repulsive among his people Israel, and therefore he will become my servant forever. So David is getting really kind of conniving here. He flees, he goes and lives under the protection of the Philistines, right? And, and the way that these old city-states worked is that you have like one major walled city with the king in it, and they control some outlying areas where there's farms and, and livestock and things. And there's little villages and cities in there that aren't walled, but they're under the protection of this big city. So Gath apparently is ruling over this area that includes this, this village of Ziklag where David's going to live. Um, and the whole time David is living with the Philistines, he's going out and he's, he's raiding all these people who are the traditional enemies of Israel and whom the Philistines would probably consider allies of one sort or another. And David's lying to his Philistine protectors and telling them that he's actually been raiding the Israelites this whole time and they believe it because they know he's made an enemy of Saul. Now in the meantime, David is doing something quite horrible, isn't he? He's annihilating these villages, he's killing all the men, women, and children in them so there are no witnesses left alive to report what he has done. This is an example of David's flaws coming to light. God, God desires mercy. God is the God of life. And David is out here slaughtering innocents. Now, it has to be said that David is a product of his times. These things he's doing that we find so horrible and that we can pretty confidently say are not what God wants his people to be doing, they're not that unusual in David's day and age. The world was a much rougher place. He's doing what virtually any other military commander would do. Now that doesn't make it okay, but it goes to show you that God will work with us. He meets us where we are. David is a product of his times. God's going to work with him. But God's also not going to overlook his flaws. And we will see that David will display plenty of character flaws as time goes on. And, and they all fall into this pattern of he just tends to behave like the men of his time behave, right? Here he's slaughtering innocents. Later, when he's king, he's gonna he's going to well, he's gonna rape Bathsheba. There's no other way to say it. He's gonna bring that woman into his household and sleep with her. Um, she has no choice in the matter, and that's not uncommon for a king in the ancient world. He's doing he's he's tempted to do the things that other men in his position would do. So he's not actually all that special here. He's not unusually bad. He's doing the same kinds of things that any other man of his time would do, given the same position of power, given the same authority, given the same skills. And isn't that interesting? Because the Bible will call him over and over again a man after God's own heart, and he doesn't actually seem to be all that much better than anyone else. He is succumbing to all the exact same 
temptations anyone else would succumb to. Now, there's no question he is overall a good king. He does the job well. He leads a unified people of Israel. He, he is a fairly moral and upstanding guy for his, again, for his day and age, he's a man of high character. It's as if God didn't pick him because he's somehow holier than everyone else, but because God knew he would make a good king. And that doesn't mean God lets him off the hook for the things he does. And in fact, God won't allow David to build the temple, right? Because there is so much blood on his hands. He's defiled himself too much to build the temple. David will be remembered as a great king. But not as a perfect man. Now eventually Saul is killed on the battlefield. So David's patience has paid off. Saul is gone and that leaves the path clear for David to seize power without killing Saul or his family. And that's kind of important. I mean, on the one hand, David believes that Saul is the Lord's anointed, and so it would be uh, a bad thing for him to kill Saul. He thinks he would be incurring God's wrath if he did that. There's also the fact that he's quite close to members of Saul's family. Remember, he's married to one of Saul's daughters. And Saul's son, Jonathan, is David's closest friend. Um... So he doesn't want to bring harm to Saul's family if he can avoid it. So he waits, and his patience pays off. Saul's killed on the battlefield. Now the path to, the th- to claiming the throne of Israel is, is clear for David, and he hasn't had to really kill anybody he didn't want to kill to get to it. So David comes to Judah and is anointed king, but Saul's main general has already anointed one of Saul's sons as king. And this is significant because, remember, Saul was never called king. He was Nagid. He was chieftain. But Saul's general anoints one of Saul's surviving sons as king, as Melech. They use that royal title. So just as David is claiming to be king, so, so Saul's general is elevating one of Saul's sons to a position that Saul himself did not hold. And so begins a civil war, which will decide the throne. Now, let's pause for a minute and, and look at this. Israel wanted a king so that they would be like everybody else. And now they are. Wars of succession were probably more common in the ancient world than peaceful transfers of power. It was very unusual in all actuality for a king or an emperor in the ancient world to nominate their son as the crown prince, and then when they died for that person to just take over the throne peacefully with no challengers. You see it all the time. There's always challengers to the throne. Part of this has to do with the sheer number of wives that ancient kings tended to have, but also part of it just has to do with the fact that um, if you could, even, even with a king in power, once they were gone, if you could rally enough support behind yourself, you could overthrow their nominated successor. You might not have been able to, to do that while the king was still alive, but once they're gone, um, the, the idea we have in like modern monarchies that we've had for the past several hundred years where it's just assumed that the heir to the throne will, will, will assume the throne and that they will be a good leader, that wasn't there. You had, to, you had to earn the trust and the respect of the people for the most part. And... While the 
crown prince would often win that war of succession because they would usually have the military on their side. They didn't always. In fact, the Persian Empire is a great example. The Persian Empire is, of course, the people who are going to set Israel free from exile. If the Israelites are in Babylon, and Babylon is conquered by Cyrus the Great of Persia, when Cyrus dies, he has two sons. The first, and this is a whole long convoluted story that we don't have time to go into in this podcast because it would take me forever. But the, the short story is both his sons are assassinated by Darius the Great, who will become the next emperor of Persia. So by the time you get mention of Darius, which does happen later on in the Bible, um, he is not the son of Cyrus the Great. He's, he's one of his generals who assassinated Cyrus's sons after Cyrus died and took the throne for himself. Happens over and over again. So this civil war where, that Israel is now fighting between the house of David and the house of Saul, this is, of course, exactly like what every other kingdom experiences when their great leaders die. Big, powerful houses with lots of influence battle over who's going to lead. And we in the modern world, we don't realize how lucky we are that every four years in the U.S. we experience a peaceful transfer of power. Do you know this is still not the norm everywhere in the world? Thanks be to God for that. So this war is going to last for seven years, during which time David is the king of Judah, but no other tribe. And he will eventually win and become the king of all Israel, but it will take seven years of constant warfare. So David's rise to power is marked by division, bloodshed, and deceit. Just because he is a man after God's own heart doesn't mean he's always a good man. It merely means that he is the one God chose. Now, to his credit, he clearly has a lot of trust in God. He repents when he sins, that's for sure. He's not too prideful to admit when he's wrong. And for the most part, he has strong ethics and is a man of high character. But he's far from perfect. And that is the point. In every other nation in the world at this time, the king is perfect. He can do no wrong. He is at least semi-divine, if not fully divine. And you cannot criticize him. The king, whatever he does, is automatically right. But not in Israel. In Israel, God alone is perfect. God alone is wise. The king is in power because God allows him to be. And the people of Israel will always know that even the greatest of their kings are sinners who make mistakes. And that even the greatest of their kings are subject to God's authority. My friends, that is a lesson modern Christians still need to learn. I'm telling you, there are some of us out there, and I'm betting it's some of you listening to this right now, who struggle, who struggle to recognize that the person you vote for makes mistakes, that they are not perfect, that they will do some things badly. Just pause for a minute and, and think about what that means. 
I have seen so many people refusing to admit that, that the person they voted for, I've seen it with, with Trump supporters, with Biden supporters. Oddly, I didn't see it much before those two, but I see it a lot now, where people refuse to admit that he makes mistakes, that he is not perfect, that he doesn't have all the answers. And I will tell you, if that's you, know that you are now worshiping that politician and not God. You have made an idol out of a human. I see it all the time. The reason why these stories in Samuel talk about David's flaws, about the things he did that were morally questionable, that were outright wrong, is so that the people will always know that their king is not perfect, that their king does not take God's place, and that their king is subject to God's authority just as much as they are. You would do well to remember that it is truly God who is in charge. To me, that is one of the most important lessons to learn from the story of David's rise to power. And now, for the answer to one of the questions that was sent in this week. It's a really good one. Um, it was asked about this story of Saul and the Witch of Endor, which is, I mean, that's, that just sounds like the title of a Tolkien book or something, doesn't it? I love it. It's a great... By the way, you can Google that, Saul and the Witch of Endor. There are some great paintings out there of it, of what this may have looked like. Um, but it is this story in in First uh, Samuel 28. So let me just read to you what, what happens in this story. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to, it's Samuel 28. I'm going to start in verse 3 where the story picks up. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. So the Philistines assembled and came and camped in Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. So Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him, either in dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Find for me a woman who is a medium, so that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes, and went he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Consult the spirit for me, please, and bring up for me the one whom I shall name for you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, and he has eliminated the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then setting a trap for my life to bring about my death? So Saul swore an oath to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. But the king said to her, 
Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up from the earth. He said to her, How does he appear? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul replied, I am very distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has abandoned me and no longer answers me, either through the prophets or in dreams. And therefore I have called you, so that you may let me know what I should do. Samuel said, But why ask me, since the Lord has abandoned you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done just as he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom from your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. Just as you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you today. Furthermore, the Lord will also hand Israel along with you over the Philistines, so tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will hand the army of Israel over to the Philistines. I'll, I'll stop right there, because so you get the gist of it. Um, it's this odd little story. Saul is getting ready to go fight a, a battle against the Philistines. It will be, by the way, his last battle. This is the battle uh, in which he is killed. And he's worried about how the battle will go. Seems that God is no longer speaking to him through all the ways that God has been speaking to him. And since the prophet Samuel is dead... Saul decides to go to a psychic, right, to a medium. And this woman would have been pretty much just like the mediums that we have today, at least in terms of what she claims she can do. So first of all, we should recall that this is explicitly forbidden. I mean, one of the laws in Leviticus is that they cannot consult mediums. The reason for that is that God is the God of the living you don't need to worry about what the dead people think because you have God. Um, now the second thing is, did this really happen? And the answer is, who knows? Maybe, maybe not. It seems, like I mean, I'm inclined to think it probably did. Um, Israelite conceptions of the afterlife kind of varied Somewhat, but their their hope was firmly rooted in the idea that the God of creation, who made creation good, would act within history. God would save them here and now, and their ultimate hope did not lie in a disembodied existence somewhere, but in the kingdom of God and eventually in the resurrection. So in the Old Testament, you won't find really anything about heaven or hell as we understand it, because that's not really part of Jewish theology. God acts here and now to reward righteousness and punish sinners. He does all that right now. And so there's not much focus on the afterlife in the Old Testament. There's a lot of focus on what's going on in the world right now. It does seem, though, that they believed in some kind of continuity of existence between death and resurrection. But for them... And really, by the way, for us, uh, well, maybe not so much for us, but for Jewish people, at least especially in Old Testament times, heaven is not the place you go when you die. Heaven is where God is. And dead people are in Sheol, or the pit. It's sort of like a, well, it depends on who you ask. Some of them would describe it as like a place of peaceful rest. Some of them would just describe it as sort of a dark, 
quiet place where the spirits are awaiting for the end of time when God will raise the dead. But it's very different from how you and I conceive the afterlife. And we can talk all we want about whether or not that's a more accurate understanding of what happens between now and the resurrection. Um, But that is a long conversation that we will probably have at some point on this podcast anyway because it ties into other Bible verses. Um, But all that to say, this story does fit with Jewish ideas about the afterlife. Samuel's spirit is ticked off because his rest has been disturbed. And he doesn't know what's been going on because he's dead. He's been cut off from the world. And remember, of course, at this time, right, Jesus has not died. Jesus has not risen again. And so everything that, that might be true of what happens after death is different now than it was then. Uh, again, that's a much longer conversation. But um, in any case, right, Samuel's dead. He goes to this psychic to um, consult this medium, right? And she calls up Samuel's spirit. And Samuel essentially tells Saul, what, what the heck do you think you're doing? Uh, you already know you've lost God's favor. You're going to die tomorrow. <laughs> and that's it. And then Samuel's done. Uh, that's all he does. It's not a very uplifting passage. So really the passage is meant to illustrate sort of the desperation and the hopelessness of Saul at the very end of his life. That he would do something so profoundly taboo as consulting a medium to wake the spirits of the dead. And so it highlights the tragic nature of his story and his failure. Very interesting story. Now, again, the question is, did it really happen? And if it did, well, does that mean that mediums today are telling the truth? It's a really good question. I don't know that I have a great answer for that. I think we can say a couple of things pretty clearly. Um, one, the, the vast majority of the people who claim to be mediums are certainly frauds. Um, it's pretty obvious. People can very easily debunk the things that they're doing. That doesn't necessarily rule out the possibility, though, that there are a small number of them who really are able to somehow commune with the dead. We do believe, of course, that there is a continuation of existence after death. That as we await the day of Resurrection, we continue to exist somehow. Um, and furthermore, we, we kind of believe that, uh, well, that, that's about it, actually. I, I really can't say much more than that because once you get beyond just that, that, decla- that de- declaration of we continue to exist between now and the resurrection, after that, actually, things get very, very fuzzy. And there are a lot of differing opinions on just how what exactly that continuation of existence looks like there are some Christian theologians who, like the ancient Jews, think that it's it's some sort of peaceful rest, like an extended sleep. There are some, obviously, who think that some of us are in heaven with God and some of us are are in hell being tormented, and there's a whole spectrum of belief in between. And in all honesty, the Bible is very vague on this. Most of the talk of the afterlife is either 
extremely symbolic because it's not trying to teach you something literal, it's trying to make a point, or it's talking explicitly about the day of judgment and the day of resurrection and not this sort of intermediate state between death and resurrection. And again, it's a much longer conversation that, that really doesn't fit within the scope of just this one podcast. So we may have to do our whole separate episode on just stuff like that at one point. The question really, I suppose, boils down to, do we believe that people can still communicate with the dead? The Bible does not give a very clear answer on this, my friends. It does have strict warnings telling people not to try it. So, even if you can, it seems like it's a bad idea. Christian theologians for a very long time have asserted that this, this sort of activity, this sort of thing that these mediums do where they contact the dead is, is somehow demonic in nature and that the things that they do in order, the, the sort of rituals they enact in order to contact the spirits of the dead are, are evil and demonic. Some would even go so far as to say that they're never actually talking to the spirit of your lost loved one, but they're actually talking to a demon impersonating your lost loved one. Of course, that doesn't seem to be what's happening in this story. All we really know is that the Bible is very clear in warning people not to consult a medium and warning them not to, not to become a medium. There is something about this that is not good for God's people, perhaps even quite dangerous in a spiritual way for God's people. And now we're kind of wandering into the realm of things that um, most modern Christians in the Western world think it really weird. We don't like to talk about it, but we have to. Because the Bible does. There is a spiritual realm. There are things going on in this world that we cannot see with the naked eye. There are spiritual forces of wickedness. Now the Bible is vague on just exactly what all these things are which means we don't need to spend a whole lot of time trying to dissect what they are. All we really need to do is recognize that God says you should not do this. You shouldn't consult a medium. You should not become a medium. There is danger there. So did this story really happen? I'm inclined to think, yeah, it did. I don't think people would have made up this story precisely because of how disgraceful and shameful it is to Saul I don't think it would have been included in their own history if there wasn't some truth there. And I guess I have to admit that even though I find it incredibly unlikely, it does seem as though if we, if we are already going to say that you continue to exist after you die in some other dimension somehow, well, it makes sense that there are probably some things that could be done in order to contact those people. Then that doesn't mean every medium can talk to all the dead people. Because like I said earlier, the vast majority of them are very obviously frauds. But is it 
possible that some of them are really doing it? Sure, sure, it's possible. It still seems unlikely to me. And based on what the Bible has to say about it, it sounds like it's probably incredibly dangerous. So please don't go consulting mediums to talk to your dead loved ones. It's a bad, bad idea. More importantly, if you really trust that God is doing all the things he says he's going to do, you don't need to talk to your dead loved ones because you know that they are with Christ and that you will be reunited with them again and that you'll have eternity together with them. This story is weird precisely because it's really the only time this happens in the Bible. So like I say, the Bible doesn't say that these things are impossible or that they're not real. It just says that they're dangerous and God's people should avoid them, which is why it only really happens this one time and it goes so, so poorly for Saul. He does not at all hear what he wants to hear. So I hope that the, the question about it, by the way, was just, will you talk about this because it's really weird? <laughs> so there was no, um, there's no like, clear answer someone was looking for in this. It was just, let's you know, unpack this a bit and talk about what's going on here. Um, it is a really weird little episode in the Bible. Um, and I love, I love these little weird stories that pop up in the Bible precisely because they sort of shock you for a little bit and they make you sort of sit up and pay attention to something that maybe you weren't paying very close attention to before and you think all of a sudden, wait, is this a psychic in the Bible? What's happening here? Um, so, fantastic question. Uh, I'm glad I was able to talk about that for a bit. I hope it answered or, or at least covered the things you wanted to know about that. And folks, that is all for this week. I'll be back next week. Uh, remember, if you have questions about anything that we have read or that we are going to read, or even if it's something we haven't read about yet, please email those questions into me at forest.divini at asburycc.org. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.